This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be from Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 23 through 5, verse 2. That can be found on page 809 of the Pew Bible in front of you. Again, that's Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. The great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Good morning. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We receive it this morning. We delight in it. We ask that you would speak to us in and through it. Holy Spirit, I ask this morning that you would do... uh, exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine in illuminating our hearts and giving us a spirit of revelation and a spirit of grace as we open your word together. Lord, would you be pleased this morning to show us Jesus? I ask the one that Matthew portrays for us as God with us, Emmanuel, who went about declaring the inbreaking of your kingdom into the world and demonstrating the renewing and remaking power of your kingdom over sickness, over death, over disease, over uh, demonic oppression, over brokenness, over sorrow, over pain. Jesus, would you be pleased by your spirit this morning to show us yourself And let us see you, let us magnify you, let us be caught up in the glory and the splendor of who you are. God, would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts this morning to see you, that we would delight in you, and we would, like so many who heard your voice, proclaim true things we would, like your disciples, leave everything to follow you. God, would you give us that kind of grace this morning? I ask for your glory in, in your name. Amen. All right, so we're in the second week of our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, what I want to do this morning before we dive into the teaching of Jesus and spend uh, an extended time there from now through the end of the year, I want to uh, step back and look at what Matthew has done to prepare us for the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, since we're not preaching through the whole gospel of Matthew uh, from beginning to end, I want to give an overview of what Matthew has done up to this point to prepare his readers 
to receive the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Because I think that two things that Matthew does from chapter 1 to chapter 4 are essential for us as we come to the words of the Sermon on the Mount. So I don't want to jump through those too quickly. So my, my hope for us today is, is really just a couple things. Number one, I want us to see, like Matthew has portrayed for us, the man of the sermon, the man that gives a sermon. You can't understand the Sermon on the Mount without understanding the man that gives the sermon. And Matthew has done a, a remarkable job at introducing us to who this man is and why it matters that when he opens his mouth, you listen and orient your life around it. He's done a phenomenal job of that. So I want to look at the man of the sermon. Then I want to look at how does Matthew portray the ministry of Jesus and what Jesus is about. Because what we're going to see is Jesus's message is turn, follow me, join yourself to me because my kingdom is breaking into the world. There is a profound shift that's happening in his ministry. And if we don't understand that, we could wrongly interpret the Sermon on the Mount as this uh, means by which we attain favor with God or something. But what we have to see is that Matthew's already set up that this is all about responding to Jesus in faith, to turning to him and joining yourself to him. So we're going to look at how does Matthew orient the ministry of Jesus. And then if we have any time left, we probably won't. I feel a little excited. Um, if we have any time left... I will uh, just try to do like a brief flyover of what the message of the Sermon on the Mount is as we get ready to spend our time in that. So that's my hope for this morning. Uh, look with me at the notes. I just want to give a brief review from some of the things we saw last week. Uh, letter A, the Sermon on the Mount, I believe is one of the most comprehensive teachings that we have from Jesus on the role of the believer in cooperating with the grace of God to pursue a life that's built around obedience to the teachings of Jesus is to build a life we saw last week uh, built on a sure and steady foundation that cannot be shaken in times of trial, in times of testing, in the storms of life, as we looked at last week in the last parable that Jesus gives. Letter B, the Sermon on the Mount provides a picture of a life in partnership with God's grace that is oriented around the things that God defines as valuable. So we, we see that Jesus is outlining for us here a picture of the value system of the kingdom of heaven. What is his kingdom built upon? And what does it mean to orient our lives around that value system? That's what he's getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's just jump to Roman numeral two. So uh, there's a brief uh, review for you there the man of the sermon. So what I want to do this morning is spend a little time in the first four chapters of Matthew to help us see what has Matthew done to get us ready for the Sermon on the Mount. To rightly understand the sermon, we have to understand the context in the Gospel of Matthew that it's placed in. Matthew has intentionally ordered his Gospel to highlight the teaching ministry of Jesus. 
So if you picked up just about any commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, what you're going to find in it is the, this outline where most commentators will say Matthew's whole Gospel is structured around five extended sections of Jesus' teaching. And I've got those there for you on a footnote. Matthew 5 to 7, Matthew 10, Matthew 13, Matthew 18, and then Matthew 23 to 25. These extended times where Jesus steps in and teaches related to uh, his ministry, the kingdom of heaven, what the kingdom of heaven is like in the world. There's all of these realities. And Matthew structures all of his gospel around these teachings. Prior to the first teaching section, Matthew has introduced the man who is about to open his mouth on the mountain to speak these words. So in order to understand the sermon, I think we have to understand what Matthew wants us to see about this man. The most important theme of the material in Matthew's gospel leading up to this sermon is this idea of fulfillment. If you're familiar with Matthew's gospel, you see this again and again as he's introducing you into Jesus the Messiah. This idea where he continually says, hey, and this happened to fulfill what this prophet talked about. This happened to fulfill God's word. This happened to fulfill all righteousness. This happened to fulfill these words that we were expecting. Jesus's life as he walks from his birth into his call to ministry, all of it has been ordered to fulfill God's purposes. Seven times in the first four chapters does Matthew hit this idea of fulfillment. So we see that Jesus' life, these events from his life, happen to fulfill the Old Testament expectation. Look with me at the top of page two. So in Matthew's gospel, there are three aspects contained in the idea of fulfillment. To lack any of these, I think, will lead to a a truncated or a, a, a version of understanding fulfillment that comes up short to what Jesus is doing or what Matthew's doing when he says Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures. So I just want to fly over these. These are important for us as we understand the scripture. But these, these are three ways of understanding what Matthew's trying to get at when he says Jesus fulfilled something, right? We oftentimes only think Jesus is completing a predictive promise. But there's, there's more to it than that. It's not just that Jesus is uh, completing something that had been said before this will happen, like a prediction, and then it happened. There's more to it. Number one, Jesus came to fulfill the requirements of God's holy standard by living his life in perfect obedience to God's character, which is God's righteousness, and his ways, which is God's justice. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that the people of God were called to embody this relationship between righteousness and justice, which is right standing or right relating to God and right behaving in the world, righteousness and justice. And Jesus, in his life, fulfills that standard at every moment. Right? There's never a moment where he lives outside of perfect communion with his father and perfect obedience to his father's will and his desire and his design for what it means to be a human in the world. 
He never one time comes short of that. So Jesus, when, he, when it's said that he fulfills things, he fulfills first and foremost God's righteous standard. He lives a life of perfect obedience to the Father before God's face and in obedience to what he desires. Just as, this is just like a helpful thing for you. This is what people were always meant to have done. When Adam is put in the garden, he is created and designed to live in communion with God. That's God walks with Adam in the cool of the day, right? Like he walks in face-to-face communion with him. And he's meant to, from that place, obey God's commandment to fill the earth and expand the boundaries of God's desired kingdom through all of the earth. Adam abdicates that role. He sins. He falls short of the glory that was designed for him in relation to God, and he falls short of it. He could not fulfill it. Go forward a a few thousand years. God calls a man named Abram, and he tells him, I'm going to make from your line a people. And he brings forth this people and gives them a law. And Israel, as the people of God, were meant to do the same thing. They were to steward God's presence in the, in the uh, tabernacle that he gave them. And from that place, they were to live in a way that was in accordance with his standards, his law, to the ends of the earth. They could not do it. One of the remarkable realities of the first four chapters of Matthew is that Matthew portrays Jesus as the new Adam and the new Israel. To where they could not do it, he did. So when you read the temptation narrative and the, the, the enemy comes to Jesus to test him and try him and get him to waver from obedience to God's ways, that is loaded with understanding of how Jesus is standing like our first parent never could and then where Israel never could in obedience to God by resisting. Right, So we see that he fulfills this design for humans, which is to live before God's face and to obey him. Jesus fulfills in that way first. Second, there are places where Jesus fulfills specific promises that God made concerning the Messiah and his work of salvation. So all throughout the Old Testament, there are promises that are given. There will be a a deliverer, a redeemer, a Messiah who will come and he will save God's people from their sins in certain ways. You could go to Isaiah 53. He will come and bear bear the reproach and the wrath of God to purchase salvation for the people of God. Jesus fulfills those promises. There are specific promises given that Jesus comes along and fulfills. That's really important. That's the second way that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament expectation. The third one, which is the one that I think is hardest for us to grasp sometimes, but I think really important as we read through this, 
is that Jesus fulfills God's purposes by bringing to its full understanding all that the Old Testament pointed toward. So much of what uh, Matthew says that Jesus fulfilled is not predictive in nature necessarily. It's not saying, hey, there's going to be a day when this happens and Jesus comes along and does that, right? Like you get these odd ones where it's like, out of Egypt, I called my son, right? That in the Old Testament is not a prediction about the Messiah. But what Matthew's saying is what the Old Testament always looked toward and the missing piece of the puzzle was always waiting for, Jesus did it. And in every single place, as you read through what God had done and what he promised and how he said he would act and all of these things, Jesus serves as the the hinge by which to make sense of it all. That's what he's getting at. So the example that I'll give here a lot of times is like, if the Old Testament was you getting handed a bag of puzzle pieces, 300 out of 1,000, and you didn't have the box top at all, and you're trying to put it together, right? You're trying to like put this puzzle together and you've got a little bit here, but you can't really tell that that's an eye or something, right? You have no idea what's going on. You're like kind of aiming in the dark and you can make some sense of it, but you don't know how this connects to this over here, right? Like how can the Messiah be the king and the one who dies for the sake of his people? How does that even work together? How do we hold them together? There's all this space between it. The life of Jesus, according to Matthew here, is like God walked up, handed you the rest of the pieces and the box top. He said, this is it. Here's the interpretive mechanism by which to understand it. And here's all the pieces Now you can go back and go, ah, that's how the eye and the hand connect to each other in this seemingly disordered puzzle, right? This is, you could also say it like this. This is like the end of a movie where at the very end, that twist happens and that one piece of information that you didn't see coming you go back and you look at it and all of the movie lined up to it. That's what Matthew's saying about fulfillment. Jesus comes and fulfills God's word in the fact that he is the interpretive key that makes sense of everything. That's what he's getting at. So when you read through Matthew 1 to 4 and you see these promises and it says, this happened to fulfill these words. You have to read it from the understanding that Jesus is not just making good on predictions. He is providing the entire interpretive mechanism for everything that went before. That's what Matthew's trying to get us to see. Letter F, at the heart of this, at the heart of Matthew's portrayal is the declaration, the first fulfillment declaration we get is that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. This identity drives all of how we are to see Jesus through the whole of the gospel. Look at Matthew 1. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So I don't know if you've ever, this is, this is one of those places where if fulfillment just means one like predictive prophecy and then this happening exactly like it, I always used to scratch my head and go, Here, here's the big kicker, right? Jesus' name isn't Emmanuel, right? They don't call him Emmanuel. So we can't be looking at fulfillment like the prediction and then this happened like this. What Matthew's getting at is, hey, what you didn't understand was this promise that was spoken of the virgin who would give birth meant that there was going to be a son who fulfilled this. And not only was he going to save his people from their sins, he was going to be the exact embodiment of what this name signified, God himself with us. God took on flesh. He became a man. He humbled himself and he is Emmanuel. The essence of what Emmanuel spoke toward that there would be a son that God is actually with us. It was fulfilled in that God actually came and is with us in the flesh. His person his being. He is God. So Matthew wants to give you a little interpretive key here. When this man walks up on a mountain and he sits down and he opens his mouth, this isn't just another teacher. This isn't just even another prophet. This is God himself opening his mouth and uttering words of life to any and all who will hear. That's what Matthew wants us to see, right? So when we go, he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, he sat down, he drew his disciples close, he opened his mouth and spoke. Matthew wants you to stop and go, wait, 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 wait. Remember something. This isn't just another teacher. This isn't just another good man. This isn't just another moral philosopher. This isn't just another prophet. This is God among us, teaching us, speaking to us, calling us, inviting us. As Jesus ascends the mountain, draws his disciples near, opens his mouth, we have to remember that the greatest reality is this is God in the flesh, addressing all those who had responded to his call. So to rightly situate and understand the words of Jesus in the sermon, we have to remember that he is the one fulfilling the Old Testament ex expectation of a time when God would work a great redemption and salvation for his people through the Messiah. Jesus' teachings, and this is important for us, and it will be for the next several weeks, as we begin to drill into these teachings, Jesus' teachings cannot be separated from Jesus' identity, meaning who he is. What he teaches cannot be separated from who he is, God in the flesh. And he cannot be separated from the work that he came to do, save his people from their sins. We cannot 
separate those two things. That really matters for us. So Matthew wants us to be face-to-face with the man of the sermon. Look at Roman numeral number three, the second thing. The second thing we have to understand when we come to the Sermon on the Mount is how Matthew presents the ministry of Jesus in summary form prior to the sermon. In the previous section, Matthew provides two summary statements of Jesus's ministry that help us orient how to interpret and apply these teachings. In the first summary statement, Matthew gives us the focus of the message that Jesus was proclaiming as he began ministering in Galilee. Look at Matthew 4, verse 17. He says, from that time, Jesus began to preach something. And he was going throughout the region of Galilee and he began to open his mouth and declare something. And he gives us this summary statement of Jesus' message. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the first statement we have here in summarizing Jesus' ministry is a message of repentance and a message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what does that, what does that mean? Right? We can gloss over that. We can say, oh, that was the summary of what Jesus said. But there's actual power in those words that we have to grapple with, I believe, in order to actually interpret the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So the purpose of Jesus' ministry, as the one who's fulfilling God's purposes that had been promised to his people, is to first call them into repentance. So the call to repentance is a call to change mindsets or change directions or change allegiances, right? Repentance in the scripture is not only about being sorry, like experiencing some sort of sorrow or confessing something as sin. Those are absolutely essential parts of repentance. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying those aren't a part of it, but there's more than that too. Right? Repentance is not simply saying that you're sorry for something. It's not simply confessing something. Repentance is I was going one way and I was faced with reality and I turned and I went a different way. That is repentance, right? It, it's an exchange. And part of that exchange is godly sorrow for going this way and confessing that that way is wrong and sinful and outside of God's ways. But there is a necessary third part, which is to turn and go in a different way, right? That is, that's what Jesus is calling here. He's saying, repent, You're going in the wrong direction. You're thinking about things wrongly. You see the world the wrong way. Your allegiances are ordered to the wrong things. Repent. See them as wrong. Confess them as wrong. Turn and give yourself to a new allegiance. Align yourself to me is what he calls them to. Look at the top of page three. Jesus goes through all the region and calls people to exchange their way of being in the world, their thinking, their values, their pursuits, their allegiances for a different way of being. This is uniquely and specifically tied to following him. So the summary message comes, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what are the very next things we see? Jesus walks up to a couple fishermen And he goes, follow me. 
and they drop everything and they come and follow him. And then he does it again. He goes to two more fishermen and he says, follow me. And they drop everything and follow him. What Matthew wants us to see here is the message of repentance is about uniting yourself as a disciple to Jesus in faith, right? Like to hear his word and to respond and to follow him, to knit yourself to him, to join yourself to him, to submit all of your allegiances and your desires and your value system to him. That's what's happening here, right? And I don't want us to miss that. That's really important for us as we come to the message of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Because as I laid out last week, we are going to have two temptations always as we come to the sermon. The one temptation is we're going to see this as some legalistic thing that we have to do to make ourselves right before God, right? We'll be tempted to go, man, how am I doing here? Am I holding up the standard here? Am I doing these things? Because this is what it means to be pleasing to God. And into that, Jesus comes and he says, hey, just turn away from the ways that you were going and join yourself to me. He doesn't say, do all these things first. That's not what he says. He doesn't walk through Galilee looking for the kind of people that are already doing the Sermon on the Mount and says, okay, these are my people. He goes to the least, the last, the lost, the outcast, the downtrodden, the hurting, the broken. He comes to them and he says, you're going the wrong way. Turn around and join me. He does not set this up as some legalistic thing to do. And the other side of the thing is a temptation to license, right? We could also believe that because of the grace of God, that we can't attain favor with God apart from his given grace to us, that we don't have to structure our lives differently or pick anything else up. But Jesus calls them to come and follow him which means there's actual changes, right? So we can't fall off either ditch. And Jesus comes and proclaims this message. So letter D, the reason that Jesus is calling people to repent is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the gospels, it's clear that Jesus understood that in his life, in his ministry, a pivotal turning point in redemption was happening. The promised kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God was breaking into the world. It was actually flooding into the world. And I want to look at the second summary statement and we'll talk about what that means. Look at Matthew 4, 23 to 25. Jesus went through Galilee. This is what we heard read this morning. Teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all Syria. They brought him the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So we see this portrait here of what Jesus is doing, 
right? So we heard the message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now we see Matthew summarize what that actually means in the early ministry of Jesus. We see several things happening. First, we see that he's teaching. He's functioning like a rabbi going through the land and gathering disciples to follow him. The concept of discipleship in the ancient world was a call to join yourself to a teacher in order to learn from him, not only to learn information. It's not like we do school, right? Which is just like information uh, exchange. You're going to like learn something to a test. He's, this is about learning the way of living in the world, the best way of living in the world. That's what he's calling people and saying, join yourself as followers of me, as learners, come and follow my way of living in the world and emulating his lifestyle. So we see that he's teaching. Then we see that he's proclaiming. Jesus is going through the region, declaring the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus possessed a unique anointing of the spirit to proclaim the good news to the poor and the downcast, Luke tells us. This itself was a specific fulfillment of God's purposes and promises for the day when the Messiah would come. So his proclamation is this summary, the gospel of the kingdom. So what does that mean? The summary of Jesus's message is the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. It's the most concise statement of the heart of what Jesus was preaching so we have to break it down. What does it mean? What does the gospel of the kingdom mean? The gospel is simply the good news, right? It's a message of good news. A gospel message was a proclamation about how a ruler or a sovereign was acting. In the ancient world, that's what a gospel message is, right? They would send out runners to proclaim the good news of how a sovereign or a ruler was acting, the actions they were taking, right? So when Jesus shows up and he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven, what he's saying is, this is the message of how God, the sovereign of all the world, is acting. This is what he's at work doing. We see here the kingdom is the essence of the gospel. Matthew is concerned to show us that the kingdom of heaven is the primary content of Jesus' proclamation. As seen earlier in verse 17, Jesus understood that in his ministry, the kingdom of heaven was breaking into the world. The kingdom of heaven is shorthand both for God's sovereign rule and the realm in which that rule is happening. Right? So it's, it's two realities. It's God's actual dominion, his rule, his reign, his power, his sovereignty, and it's the place that that sovereignty happens, that sovereign rule happens. So Jesus is coming to the world and he's saying, turn around, stop going that way and aligning yourself with those values, those ways, those allegiances, because in my ministry, the reign of God is breaking into the world. That's what he's saying. That's the message of Jesus. The good news of Jesus's life is that God's kingdom is breaking into the world, right? And we often lose sight when we talk about the gospel. We often will lose sight of that as the primary me uh, message, that the good news that Jesus proclaimed is that in his life, 
God's rule and his domain and his dominion and his renewing work and redeeming work was crashing into the world in and through him. Now, all of us should have this idea or maybe question at this point. And this is where the other elements of the gospel come into play. We go, how do I participate in that? How do, how, do I, how do I get to be a part of that? If God's reign, if his recreation work is literally breaking into the world in this man, I go, how do I, how do I get to be a part? Then the message comes, you're running the wrong way. You have, you made yourself an enemy of the king of all heaven through sin through rebellion, through allegiances to things that were outside of him. All like Adam, all like Israel have fallen short of the glory of God and you and I are in that all. We all looked at our created glory and exchanged it for something else. So we are outside of God's ways, outside of his reign, outside of his realm, and the only way that we can participate is that God creates a way for his own wrath to be appeased and for our sins to be covered, which is what Jesus had to come and do. It's why he lived a perfect life, why he died the death that we deserved, so that in the proclamation of God's reign is breaking into this world, how do I be a part? Believe upon the Son of God who gave his life as a ransom for you. This is where Paul in Colossians chapter one links the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of forgiveness together. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he says that God transferred us out of the domain of darkness, meaning we were a part of a different kingdom. We all willfully chose to put ourselves in a different kingdom, which is sin and destruction and death. We chose that. And God plucked us out like brands plucked out of a fire. And he took us out of the domain of darkness and he put us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. And then his next sentence is, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of forgiveness are two sides of one coin. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have one without the other. But Jesus shows up and he says, this is the message. The kingdom of heaven is crashing into the world. Repent and turn and join yourself to me. Join yourself to me. We see, look at the top of page four. Matthew also wants to make sure we see this that Jesus is going about healing every disease and every affliction. This is a summary statement, not just to tell us that there's a message that the kingdom of heaven is breaking in. Matthew actually wants us to see that it is breaking in. This shows the reality of what Jesus proclaimed. The remaking of the created order was a marker 
that the age of the Messiah or the day of the Lord, when God would act to renew all things. Jesus' power and authority over sickness, over disease, over demons, and even creation itself, which is what all of Matthew 8 and 9 is about. It demonstrates the reality that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he proclaims it, repent, turn, come and join me, follow me, put your faith in me, Jesus says. Why? Because God's work of renewal is breaking into the world. Come and join me. And then Matthew doesn't want it to just be words that we hear. He wants to actually show you, hey, just in case you were wondering, here's the evidence that Jesus was bringing the reign of God in the world. Sickness was gone. He healed them all. Diseases, gone. Demonic oppression, gone. He even had authority over creation itself. When he would look at storms and go, stop. God in the flesh, Emmanuel, with us, bringing the reign and the rule of God into our world. So what does this all have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Again, to understand these teachings, to understand the words that come out in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have to understand the man who is teaching these words. You can't separate his teachings from his identity and his work. He is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. So when he opens his mouth, when he says these words, when he draws his disciples in and says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are, and he lays out this value system. This isn't just some philosopher or moral teacher showing up on the block trying to like give us a new way. This is God giving an exposition and a picture of what life in his kingdom looks like. That's what's happening. We can't separate it from that and we cannot separate it from the reality of what's happening in Jesus' ministry. He is calling people to a posture of repentance. Stop being aligned to this way, to a way that is outside of God's way, his world, his, his reign, his truth. Stop submitting yourself to those values, those ways, those allegiances. Repent and align yourself to me because the kingdom is breaking in. And then he gathers his disciples and says, this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom. So for the next several weeks, as we open the words of the Sermon on the Mount, we're looking at Jesus painting a picture of what discipleship looks like, living in the kingdom as those who have responded to him by faith. That's what we need to see as we come to it. So what we're going to do this morning as we close is we're going to come to the table together. And we're going to celebrate communion. And what we do each and every week as we do this, I love, I love the ability of what communion does, even in light of these two realities. 
What I want us to call us to this morning as we come to the table is to remember the man. Like when we come and take this bread and this cup, this is the broken body and the shed blood of the savior of the world who is Emmanuel, God with us. So these, these, this bread and this cup, they signify for us this life that fulfilled God's purposes, fulfilled his righteous requirements, fulfilled these promises that were given and fulfilled them by showing us the interpretive key to all that he had said before. And we get to come and celebrate the, the sacrifice that God himself provided for us, which was his very own son, the word made flesh, emptying himself to the point of death so that we could taste life in him. We remember that. And we hear again the gospel message, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus welcomes us today to participate in the life of the reign of God in this world by faith in him. And that's our posture as we repent, right? We, are, we experience sorrow, we confess our sins, but we realign our lives and our, our, the whole of who we are with his ways and his purposes. And we do that as we come to the table as well. If you believe those things, if you were submitted to Jesus by faith this morning, you're a Christian and we want to invite you to come and take this meal with us. This meal at, at Redeemer here, we're, we, we are open. Uh, it is open to all who profess Jesus, who put their faith in him. The way we take communion at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up in the front, the middle, and in the balcony. We have a gluten-free station to my right, to your left. If you're in the room and you do not put your faith in Jesus, we're, we're really glad you're here with us this morning. We, we, uh, we ask that you not come and take this meal. We don't want you to feel like you have to perform or do some religious ritual to, to be welcomed here. This meal is for those who put their faith in Jesus. This meal signifies the reality of our faith in the man and in his message. And if you don't put your faith in that, this, this meal is, is not something that will afford you right standing with God. It won't save you. It won't make your sins clean. So we invite you to stay in your seat uh, where you are. Uh, but for those of you who are receiving, I'm gonna pray for us. The servers are gonna come forward and then we'll receive together this morning. God, we love you this morning. We, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ministry of Jesus. God, we thank you that you were pleased in your eternal purposes to ordain a way to bring salvation in and through your son. Thank you that for any and all in this room who will call upon him by faith, that we can be welcomed into life in your reign, 
and in your rule. God, I ask this morning that we would all experience that as we put our faith in Christ, as we submit ourselves to him, as we realign ourselves to him, as we, as we turn from our sinful ways and the ways that we've aligned ourselves in values or, or pursuits or um, submission to other things, and we turn our hearts to Jesus this morning again, would you come and feed us and nourish us and sustain us by your spirit? God, as we look to you in faith, would you speak to us? Would you empower us? Would you renew us and remake us? God, I ask this morning, even as we come to the table, I want to ask that you would give demonstrations of your kingdom in our midst. I actually ask that you would increase those demonstrations even in our midst right now. You still heal. You still deliver. You still break in with the power of the kingdom. God, would you come and make that known among us? Paul says that the kingdom is not just with, with words. It's not with talk. It's with power. So Jesus, as we come and celebrate the gospel message in the, in the, in the elements this morning at the table, God, would you heal our bodies? God, would you heal our minds? Would you make our minds whole and sound? Would you push back darkness in our lives and in this place and in our city? God, as we celebrate the lordship of Jesus over everything, would you come and break in with your kingdom power in our midst? I ask that you would break in right now with the kingdom power in our midst. God, even, even like as we take the bread and the wine, and we look to you in faith, God, I ask that you would heal bodies. Nobody even prays over somebody or lays their hand on them. God, would you release your healing power? Would you do miracles this morning? Would you speak this morning? Would you release words of wisdom and words of knowledge in our midst that we would build one another up this morning? God, would you evidence your dominion and your reign here. Jesus, you are Lord. You are the Lord. You are the King. You are the one whose rule and reign we desire. So would you come and manifest that this morning? I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And as always, uh, we have people in the room that would love to pray with you and for you. Um, if, there's, if there's a particular need that you have, you desire to experience more of God's leading in your life or more of his voice, or you just want to submit yourself to him in a new way this morning, we have people that would love to stand with you. If you need healing in your body, we would love to ask the Lord to release the evidences of his kingdom, even in your physical body this morning. So we have people that would love to pray with and for you. Uh, come and receive from the table this morning. Come and receive uh, ministry one uh, among one another this morning, and we're going to respond in those ways now.